Now today, we're finishing up this series, It's My Life. And if you're just joining us, you're kind of coming in at the end of a movie, and if after today you think, wow, I wish I was here at the beginning, you can go to newlifewichita.com. All of these messages are there for free, and you should share these and discuss these with friends and family, uh, maybe your small group, because the feedback that I've gotten has been so encouraging, ranging, ranging from students to seasoned adults, uh, saying that this series has really hit home for them uh, or for people that they love. It's just been helpful. So uh, if you were at, here at the beginning of this series, I gave a message I'm affectionately calling forever the concubine and the chainsaw. Okay, it's one of the most fantastic and disturbing stories in all of ancient literature. It's found in the book of Judges. And then that talk launched us into this series around the idea that there's something in all of us that wants to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. And then we add the American caveat, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. So I've talked about that idea through this series because there's this period in the history of Israel when this is exactly what everyone did. In fact, the final statement at the end of the book of Judges is, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there's a little bit of that in me. And there's a little bit of that in you. We don't like people telling us what to do. We want to do what we want, when we want, and so we've been talking about that. And the tragedy for Israel is a tragedy for you and for me, that God had established the nation of Israel to do something extraordinary, and instead of looking up, they decided to look around, and they looked around at all the people around them. They decided they wanted to be like everyone around them, the neighboring uh, nations, and time after time after time, they would disobey God, face the consequences of that choice, and then they would get, when they got into trouble, they did what you or I did when we were like 16 or 17, and we have to call our mom or call our dad and say, hey, mom, dad, I broke the rule that you established, and I'm, now I'm experiencing the consequences you said I would experience, so would you come and bail me out? And so they would break God's law, and as a result, they would get into trouble, face the consequences, and again, then they'd do what we would do. There's been many times in our life where we've made a decision that got ourselves into a circumstance that we didn't like, and so suddenly we start praying, you know, God, I know I ignored you. I ignored your law. I ignored what I knew in my heart was wrong, uh, and I broke your law. Would you just give me one more opportunity? Would you help me? Will you get me out of this? And again and again, God would bail the nation of Israel out over and over because he had made a promise. And God is a God who keeps his promises always. And he said to the nation, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you whether you want to be used or not as a light to the Gentiles. I'm going to use you, Israel. And I'm going to bless the entire world. And then he gave them the same options that he gives you and that he gives me. He says, you can work with me or you can watch me work. Because I have something big in the works. And so in this very, very dark time in the nation and uh, in the history of Israel, God worked. God continued to work despite the fact that the nation had abandoned and rejected and ignored God over and over again. And the amazing thing is right in the middle of this very dark time, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, God was actually preparing the stage for Christmas. And if you've been with us this series, it's just chaos after chaos in a time when Israel had lost faith in God and decided, you know what? God has abandoned us. God has abandoned us. I mean, we've been told these stories about Egypt and Pharaoh and Moses and Father Abraham and all this stuff, but we have come to the conclusion it's just a myth. 
And for some of you, this is, there's a lot of people that this is the conclusion they come to when it comes to their Christian faith and being raised in the church. You know what? I just think it's all a myth used to control us and manipulate us and make us behave, that God is not alive, that God is distant, He is indifferent, He's inactive in our nation and in our world, yet quietly, almost unnoticed. God was, in fact, setting the stage and preparing the way for the very first Christmas. And he used two very interesting people. The first character is he used a woman that was so angry. She was so angry and so disappointed with her God. She was so disappointed with God that when she arrived home, she declared to her town, as we'll see in this story, God has abandoned me. God has forsaken me. And, and when I look back at my circumstances, there is no evidence that God is there. And if God is there, he is actively against me. There's no evidence that God cares for me. And for some of you, but for sure some people in you know that, the people that you know in your life, but that might be you. It might be a season where I just, I, I just, there's no evidence of God's activity or faithfulness in my life. The other main character is a man who is extraordinary in the sense that even though, as we've talked about, as he looked around and there's no evidence of the presence or the activity of God or his faithfulness, he decided to st- swim against the stream of his culture and defy his culture. And he decided to remain faithful because he believed God was faithful and that God was at work even though there was no evidence of God being at work. So today we're going to look at one of my most favorite accounts in all of the Old and New Testaments. It's one of my favorite for several reasons. A couple is, uh, the first is, it's one of the most relatable stories in all of Scripture from which we just draw this incredible insight into uh, the character and the work and the trustworthiness of God, especially in our lives when He seems so far away or indifferent or not at work at all. One of the other reasons is, quite honestly, I'm just a big romantic. Okay, and in this story, God, in a very unusual way, brings this man and brings this woman together. And in doing so, not only changes their lives and their fates forever, but he was, in fact, setting the stage for the thing and the time that we call Christmas. The story is found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. You may have heard this story before. Maybe you grew up in church, and it might have just been part of a children's story. What you may not know is that the story of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. Now, this, that's, this is the part of the history of Israel that we've been talking about over the last five weeks. And the story of Ruth happens right in the middle of this time period. And it's like this singular bright spot. It's like this anomaly in all of this darkness and chaos that's going on. And it was God's way of preparing the world for Christmas. So I'll tell you the story. It's Ruth 1.1. Here's how the whole thing begins. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, and there's our town, in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, if you can imagine the layout of the Holy Land, uh, the Holy Land, we've got an image up up on the wall. During this time, uh, to the east or to the right is the Dead Sea. And then on the other side of the Dead Sea is the nation of Moab. Now, the man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab to live there. So you get the picture. They've got Naomi, Elimelech, and two sons. And they're leaving Bethlehem because there's a famine. There's no food. There's no no way to get any work to support a family. So they travel all the way on foot to Moab 
Sometime later, Elimelech dies, and now, so Naomi is a widow. She's left with her two sons, but now these two sons, especially in that culture, they need to get married. The only problem is they're in Moab, so all the women in the area are Moabites, and in God's law, they called it the law of Moses, the law says don't marry foreign women. And it wasn't because God was against interracial marriage, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, that in that time and in that culture, when you married someone from another nation, you not only got them, but you got their gods or their idols that came with them. And God was trying to keep the nation of Israel pure religiously. But again, it was a time when everyone did was what was right in their own eyes. So when in Moab, do as the Moabites do. So they each married Moabite women. So now it's Naomi her two, daughter, her two sons, and now her two daughters-in-law. But then her oldest son dies, then the youngest son dies, and now her only family there and everyone around her, they're all Moabites. So Naomi decides, God is against me. God is opposed to me. God has cursed me. He, he obviously doesn't care. He's not going to hear my prayers. She hears that things are getting better back in Judah, so she decides she's going to leave and go back. So she gets her daughter-in-law's, daughters-in-law together, says, look, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You stay here. You're still young. You're young. You're good. You showed love to my sons, your dead husbands. You showed love to me. So I'm going to leave, but please stay here. Please get remarried. Have a nice life because God has abandoned me. You don't want to be anywhere near me. And they have this huge emotional moment, and one of the daughters-in-law decides to stay in Moab, but the other one, Ruth, decides to stay with Naomi. And now this is a, it's a bigger deal than we understand, because this was a very dangerous decision. If you've been with us through this series, then you know this was a very, very dangerous time for women, especially in this time and in this culture. And Ruth said to Naomi, no, I am not leaving your side. I am going to travel with you. So two women alone on a long journey. Naomi says, no, it is too dangerous. The journey is too dangerous. You will be in a foreign land. These are my people. These are not your people. Eventually, I'm going to die. And then you'll be a Moabite living in Israel. This is not safe for you. I I can provide you no hope for a future husband. But Ruth, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of ancient literature, and for sure in, in Scripture, says this. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I mean, just such incredible love and loyalty. No matter what dangers lie ahead, Naomi, I am going with you. So this is the picture. Ruth, a young Moabite widow, and Naomi, an older Israelite widow, making this long trek and journey back to Bethlehem. And amazingly, they survive the journey. They get back to town, and people began to look at this older woman. And as you read the story, uh, and you really should read the story, it's only four chapters. As they begin to look, like that, that looks like Naomi. I think that's Naomi, but who is that with Naomi. And eventually they come to her and go, Naomi, what's, what's happened? I mean, it's been years since we've seen you. And her reply is, don't call me Naomi, which in their language, it meant pleasant. She said, call me Mara, which in their language meant bitter, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
Why call me Naomi? The Lord's afflicted me, the Almighty. He's brought misfortune on me. If there is a God, He does not care about me. He does not hear my prayers. If there is a God, I'm not interested because this is His fault. He caused this, and He's cruel. And and if all those stories of God that we've heard or been raised with are, are true, clearly that God is disinterested in me. He is against me. And again, this might be something even you feel right now, for sure people in your life feel right now as we enter this Christmas season. And in a moment, it's if Naomi becomes a microcosm of her entire country, the entire nation of Israel, that has said, God has abandoned us. God is not for us. He has abandoned our nation. And yet, what should fascinate us and get our attention is that 3,500 years later, we know her name. This is one of the few women of this period of history, of ancient history, whose name and story has survived. And that should get our attention. Because not only had God not abandoned her, she was about to be at the epicenter of what God was doing, but she didn't know it. She couldn't have even fathomed it. The story continues when Naomi and Ruth, they arrive in Bethlehem. It's barley harvest season. Something to import, this is something important to the story because in, in that time and culture, you had landowners who owned acres and acres and acres of land, and they would plant barley. And then during the harvest time, they would send servants out into the barley fields to harvest. But there was actually a law to guide them in how they harvested. The law of Moses said, you can only harvest your field one time. You can't go back after uh, and pick it over again. If there's anything left over, you leave it on the ground, and then the poor and the widows can come up behind you and pick up the remnants and the leftovers. This was one of the ways that God helped to uh, set up things to care for the poor. So Naomi says, Ruth, especially as two women in this culture, we can't survive unless we do something. So what I want you to do is you need to go with the poor and the widows and because you're a widow and I need you to go because I'm too old. Go into one of these fields and just pick up whatever you can and then we'll sell it, uh, we'll cook it, we'll do whatever we need to do to survive. So Ruth goes into one of these fields at random. And again, this is very, very dangerous because this is a group of very vulnerable women alone, scattered throughout these fields. This is a male-dominated society where women had no rights, no recourse, where men could do what they wanted, when they wanted, with whom they wanted. And she has no protector and no guardian. And to top it off, she's a foreigner. Well, what happens is she chooses the property of a man named Boaz, who we find out later is actually a distant relative of Naomi's husband who had passed away, but we don't know it at this point in the story. So one day Boaz goes out to, to his fields. He sees this foreign woman out there uh, with all the Israelite women gleaning from the fields. And he asks the servants, like, so who, who's, who is this? Who's this woman out here? Who's the new girl? And they tell him, this, this is Ruth. This is Ruth the Moabite who came from, back from Moab with Naomi. Now, this story had circulated around that this strange Moabite woman had chosen to remain faithful to her mother-in-law and that she, even though it meant leaving her family and her country and making this dangerous journey that she around the Dead Sea, that she had done this and come back with Naomi uh, to the area in Israel and to Bethlehem. So the rumors had spread about her and Boaz is impressed. In fact, we're told later on there's this conversation that he has with her and he says this to her, Ruth, I, 
I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with the people that you did not know before. She'd never been to this part of the world before. Then he says, and this is so out of character with everything else that is going on during this part of history. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, Boaz is saying, I still believe. I still believe that God is there and that God is a God of honor. I still believe that God cares for those who will make right, and right decisions for what you have done, that he respects those. That may you be richly rewarded by the very God that your mother-in-law has determined doesn't care or is against her or has abandoned her. He even invites her to eat from some of the food that he's brought for his servants. And then Boaz, uh, off to the side, he orders his servants, do not molest her, do not reprimand her, do not bother her. She is in my safe keeping. I'm deciding to be her protector. And, he, and let her take all she wants. In fact, he tells his servants, in fact, pull out some of the stalks as you're harvesting from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. She is an honorable woman who has done an honorable thing. Treat her with respect. Well, as a result of Boaz's orders, she's very successful with her gleaning, so much so that when she gets back home, her mother-in-law is like shocked, like, oh my gosh, how did you, this is so much more than I should expect. Where did you glean today? And Ruth says, well, I found favor with a man who owns the field. His name is Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz, Boaz is actually a distant relative of my late husband. So some more time goes by, things are working out, but time is passing, neither woman is getting any younger. And so one day Naomi says, listen, Ruth, you've got to get married. We've got to get you married. Once I die, you will be on your own. You need a protector and to be provided for. So Naomi decides that Ruth needs what's called a kinsman redeemer. Now the best way to think of a kinsman redeemer is to think of kind of that like childless uh, rich uncle in your family, if you've got one of those. Like, it's just someone in your extended family. It's like they've got more money than God. And he's like, hey, you know, he, you know he's like my wife's brother's cousin's sister's, you know, husband. You're not, we're not really related exactly, but he's like the richest person that's somehow kind of connected to the family. Well, that's what a kinsman redeemer was. A kinsman redeemer was that wealthy person that was connected to a, an extended family. And so when people in the family got in trouble, this was the person that they went to. And in this culture, a kinsman redeemer didn't have to step up, but it was an official title. It was also sometimes translated as the Avenger, which not going to lie, I kind of like that, as he's an Avenger. And this would be the person that would step up and help a family member that was in distress. And essentially, there were four things that a kinsman redeemer could be asked to do. The first is they could be asked to protect an impoverished family or impoverished family member. If a family or a family member fell into poverty, then a kinsman redeemer could come in and say, hey, uh, or you could go to them and say, could, could, could I have a loan? Uh, would you buy my house back from the bank? Would you help me out with, with my bills? The second thing is that they could repurchase lost property. Like similar to our day, there, could be, there would be liens against property or even people because of debt or gambling or because they were able, unable to keep up. Uh, with, with whatever the property was. So a kinsman redeemer could go and buy back property that had been, been taken uh, and buy that back for the family member. The third thing is that uh, kinsman redeemers could redeem family members that had been sold into slavery. Because in, in this culture, if you had a debt that you couldn't pay, they could enslave you or they could enslave one or more of your children. 
And so a kinsman redeemer could come, be asked to come in and redeem and, and make payment and, and get their uh, loved one out of, uh, out of uh, slavery. And then the final thing, a kinsman redeemer, like in an extreme circumstance, a kinsman redeemer could be asked to provide a male heir for a male relative, for a male relative who died but they had no son. So the kinsman redeemer would actually uh, step in to help provide a male relative in order to further someone's line or name or for the estate. And so Naomi says, Ruth, look, we need to find you a kinsman redeemer. And this, to some, in some ways, is going to be like near impossible because Ruth's not an Israelite. Like she had married an Israelite, but she's not one. She's a Moabite. And as we discover in the story, in order for someone to be her kinsman redeemer, then they were going to have to marry her. And, and, and because Naomi was too old to have children, so they're going to have to marry Ruth. We also find out Naomi's late husband had a piece of property that was involved, uh, and to, uh, they, it had either been lost because they'd been gone for so long, or there was a debt on the property, there was money owed, but somehow she needed to get this property sold so that they could pay the debt. So there was an estate in question. So she says to Ruth, and she essentially says, and these are, are our terms, not theirs, you need to ask Boaz to marry you. That's essentially what she's saying. To, to be our kinsman redeemer is equal to a marriage proposal because the only way that he can be our kinsman redeemer is for him to marry you. So essentially, ask Boaz to marry you. Now, in our highly sexualized American culture, when you actually read how this all went down, uh, there are people that read this and they put all kinds of innuendo and stuff. that It's just not there. You know, we somehow picture like this hot, sexy Moabite woman coming in to like seduce this middle-aged or older Boaz and all this sexual innuendo. It's, it's just not in there. It's not even insinuated. In fact, the opposite is true because, again, this was a very, very risky venture for anyone to be a kinsman redeemer, especially for a foreign woman. Because then you are not only responsible for her, but you become responsible for her family and any children that you have with her and the behavior of those children. And if something happens to one of your sons, then a large portion or maybe the entirety of your estate will go to them. And so uh, whoever you choose to include in your family. So this was a very risky, uh, sacrificial decision for anyone to make. So Ruth, in this, in this powerful narrative, and again, I'm just going to let you read it for yourself. In the most appropriate way that fit that culture, she goes to Boaz knowing he has every reason to say no. So it's like, I, I know it's one thing for you to, pro to provide protection from your servants, but to marry me, to bring me into your family with all of my liabilities, and you don't know about my crazy family on the other side of the Dead Sea and the drama that this might produce, you know, but, but would you be my avenger? Would you be my kinsman redeemer? And Boaz says, yes, but there's a hitch. The hitch is that you have a relative that's even closer to Naomi than I am, and he gets dibs. He gets first right of refusal on the estate and you. And because Boaz is an honorable man who says, you know what, we're not going to do anything behind the scenes. We're going to play by the rules. We're going to trust the process. This is the law that God has established. And even though everyone else has abandoned the law and abandoned God, I am not. So Boaz says, we're going to go to this other relative and see and see if I can work this out. So again, you can read the details for yourself. Uh, ultimately, he goes to the city gate because that's where you do business transactions. He meets with this gentleman, says, Naomi through Ruth has asked me to be kin a kinsman redeemer. 
and there's a piece of property that I would need to part, purchase as part of the deal, and Naomi and Ruth and whatever they have uh, and whoever they're related to, that's all part of the deal. So she's asked me to ask you first, would you be the kinsman redeemer? Are you willing to do that? And the guy says, I am. And the reader goes, oh, no, because, you know, Ruth is like, who knows what this other guy is going to be like, right? But then Boaz makes his strategic move. Then Boaz said, oh, by the way, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, because she's considered property in this culture, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Boaz says, if you get the property, which is a good deal, you also get this Moabite woman, which may not be such a good deal, and you have to have children with her, or at least attempt to have children with her. And if she has a son, that son will have an inheritance, and that inheritance will come from your estate. Uh, Just so you know, are you willing to do that? And this, at this, the guardian redeemer, another phrase for kinsman redeemer, said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it. I cannot do it. And the reader breathes a sigh of relief, okay? I can't do it. It's too risky. I don't know what, what her crazy family's like on the other side of the sea or who's going to show up on my front door once we're married. And I don't know how this might affect my own sons. It's going to make Christmas complicated. They don't even speak our language. She did, you know, it's just like... If you want her, you take her. And Boaz, an, an honorable man who sees the honor in Ruth, who honored her mother-in-law, the one who had decided, God has abandoned me, the Almighty has forgotten me, Boaz marries honorable Ruth. And that could be the end of the story, and it would be a great story. But God had made a, Israel a promise, and God keeps His promises. And even though Israel wasn't going to cooperate, God did not back, ground, back, back down. So Ruth and Boaz are married, and they have a son, and he's named Obed. And, and again, if you read the book of Ruth, there's, like the, there's this tender part of the story where uh, older Naomi is holding this baby, and she looks at him and says, wow, God was faithful to me after all. I gave up on God. I thought he abandoned me. God had abandoned me in my old age, but now I know God is alive. God is with me. God cares. God has allowed me to live long enough to hold this baby. I've lived long enough to see God redeem my family. And then Naomi sometime later dies. And then Boaz dies. And then Ruth dies. But Obed grows up. And he gets married. And he has a son as well. And Obed's son is named Jesse. Jesse had a whole bunch of sons. And years go by, and then one day shows up and speaks to the prophet, a prophet named Samuel. He says, Samuel, I'm about to do something new in the nation. I'm about to begin a brand new era in the nation of Israel that's going to have ramifications for thousands of years. And I need a man. I need you to take your horn of oil, and I need you to go find my king. And here's what he says. It says in 1 Samuel, this is God speaking to the prophet Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Jesse, the son of Obed. Obed, the son of Boaz, who took a risk and married an honorable Moabite woman. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel shows up and one by one goes down the line from the oldest to the youngest and to each one goes, nope, not it, nope, not it. And finally, they call him the least likely candidate from the fields. So, so unlikely, they didn't even bother calling him in the first round. And into the house 
And onto the pages of history walks a young man, and his name is David, the second king of Israel, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite, who was faithful and loyal to her mother-in-law. Years go by, and another prophet appears to Nathan, or another prophet Nathan appears to David, and he speaks on behalf of God, and he says to King David, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established, let me repeat it, forever. And from this prophecy, the Jewish people knew from that day forward, they recognized that if there was going to be a Messiah, a Savior of the world, a king that reigned forever, that king would come from the lineage of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth the Moabite. And David had a son who had a son who had a son. And 25 pregnancies later, or to use Bible terms, 25 begats later, according to the Gospel writer Matthew, Eliezer fathered Mathen, Mathen fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Yeshua, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, born on what we celebrate as Christmas Day. And throughout his life, he would not only be referred to as the Messiah, the Son of God, but Yeshua in Latin, Jesus, the Son of David, because he was born from the lineage of David and the town of David. The home of Naomi, who brought to that city a Moabite woman who would marry Boaz, who would have a son that began the lineage of sons many, many years later. Jesus was born. That's how Boaz and Ruth saved Christmas for us all. Now here's the amazing thing. When, when Jesus was born, all those years later, wise men from the east show up and they announce to the family that anyone to anyone that was, would listen, not only has a baby been born, but that a king had been born. And they believed it wasn't just a king, but a reigning king. And Herod believed that a king had been born, so much so that he did everything he could, including annihilating babies and toddlers to eliminate the king that had been born. And in many years later, Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, appointed by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, and Pontius Pilate, just moments away from sending Jesus to his execution, would say to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus would look him right in the face. And instead of cowering and begging for his life, he would stare down the power of Rome and say, it is as you say. I am. But don't misunderstand, Pilate. My kingdom is not of the world, but my kingdom is of the heart. It's of conscience. I have come to reign and to rule through men and women all over this world that will eventually come to an end. I am a king. But not a king as you think. And the amazing thing is Pontius Pilate would simply become another footnote in the story of King Jesus. The king who leveraged his power for the powerless and did what no other king ever imagined or ever thought of. That instead of requiring his followers to die for him, he would be a king who would lay down his life for his followers. And he extends, the king extends this invitation to every single one of us. And it's an invitation to invite him in, that he might reign and he might rule in our hearts today. And where it took God hundreds and hundreds of years to 
prepare for that first Christmas, you and I, in a single decision, can become part of the story in a very personal way by yielding your heart, by yielding your heart to your Savior, the King, the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we conclude this series, I want to invite the band up. And as we go into this incredible season of Christmas, If I could just shake you and make you, I would, but I can't. But what I would invite you to do is just consider something, doing something that maybe perhaps you've never done before, and it's just simply deciding. Instead of me sitting on the throne of my own heart, deciding I'm going to continue doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, with who I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, that in a season, this season you might decide, I I want to make a change and I want Jesus to be my king. I want to yield the throne of my heart to him. I want him to reign and invite him to reign and rule in my heart and in my life from the inside out. So if you invite him to do that, if you invite him with just open hands and a heart wide open to your heavenly father, through his son Jesus Christ, through his spirit, he'll revolutionize you through the inside out which will then revolutionize your life and your relationships and your lifestyle on the outside. But unlike every other king, he will not force you to submit. You have to choose it on your own. There's a picture in the New Testament of Jesus as a king who stands outside the door and knocks and then waits. He knocks and he waits for you to invite him in. He, he won't force the door even though he could. And so if you never done that, or maybe in some ways, just behaviorally, spiritually, you've been away for a long time, you'd say, doing what you want, when you want, with who you want, and it's just not working for me. Would God really take me back? The answer is yes. Absolutely yes. You have to just read the book of Judges. So whether it's a first time, or for some of you as we move into a new year, it might just be a renewal. But that this morning I just want to lead us in a prayer and lead you in, in a prayer. And these aren't magic words. Uh, the words, the, the prayer, it's just an opportunity for you to express to your Heavenly Father that you're yielding the throne of your heart to your Heavenly Father and to Jesus as King, Messiah, and Savior. So I want to lead you in a prayer and so that you're not alone. I'm just going to ask everyone, if you're, if you're a Jesus follower, you'd say, I'm a Christian who follows and seeks to submit and obey and follow Jesus as Lord of my life, I just want to ask you as we come to the end of this, almost the end of this year and the beginning of another to just repeat these words. So if you say, you'd, you're somebody would say, I'm a believer, that you would pray this so that nobody prays alone. So would you just bow your heads as a sign of reverence? Just close your eyes. And whether this is a first or a renewal or it's just simply an affirmation of a decision maybe you made many, many years ago. Would you just say this after me? Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your Son. I believe He is the King. I want Him to be my King. I yield the throne of my heart to Him. I believe that when He died, He died for me. I believe that when he died, he took my sin. Please forgive my intentional rebellion. 
Forgive my accidental rebellion. Open my eyes to see the world as you see it. And to see myself as you see me. And give me the wisdom and courage to know what to do from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.